We plan to do this topic before uh, Queen Elizabeth II died, but it is quite interesting this week where we've had the Queen's funeral and look forward to the, uh, the National Day of Mourning, uh, that um, the death of a monarch who reigned for such a long period of time is an extraordinary thing and leads people to give thanks for her many noble and admirable qualities, um, including her professed Christian faith. But it has also provoked a lot of people to think uh, afresh, it, it provokes the conversation afresh about the British monarchy itself, what's now the Commonwealth, but was previously an empire um, that, uh, that spanned the globe, and to reflect on that legacy also, that she was part of a system that, that had, uh, had an impact across the planet for good and for ill. Um, and, uh, and so it's quite interesting in, in that context to be then thinking about, well, what, what has been the ways in which Christianity has been uh, woven into, entangled with, and sometimes, as we'll see, um, in, in tension with uh, the, the spread of, of Western culture around the world. We're going to be thinking about this theme this morning, colonialism and missionaries. So first up, as we come into this topic, let's just define terms a little. Uh, what is colonialism? Well, colonialism, the spread of the power of a nation into an empire, in a sense you could say, is colonialism. Whenever that happens, whenever a nation or a, a ruling group of people spreads across then neighbouring people and takes control over another country, fully or partially, this country becomes its colony. Sometimes you get settler colonialism, where you send a lot of your people to go live somewhere else, but not always. Sometimes you just send enough people to control the place and get the things that you want from that country. You know? And that could be a range of things, natural resources, um, workforce, so slavery, or, or, or at least just the population to do jobs for you, if not enslaved, um, land for a growing population, more places for your people to live, or in the case of Australia's colonisation initially, more place to get rid of the people that we don't know what to do with in Britain. Um, uh, it could be economic or military positioning. So your country is no use to me, but it brings me into connection with other countries that have stuff I want, either to protect me or to transport goods or have access to rivers, ports and so on. Um, or it could be a belief in some kind of destiny that my religion or my civilization um, has a kind of manifest destiny to bring to the world, something like this. In that broadest sense, colonialism is not a new thing. I'm, I'm sure you realise that. It, that. it isn't just something connected with the British Empire or something like this, but we have empires right back in the... In, say, for example, the Bible, seen as a historical text, does tell us the story of the empires, say, of the Assyrians. And you see various kind of colonial practices in 1 Kings, 16, 17, 18, as the Assyrian emperors, Tiglath-Pileser, Shalmaneser, Sennacherib, spread out and and plan ways to control other countries and get resources from those other countries and so on. There's been the Egyptian Empire, the Syrian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Turkish Empire, the Mongolian Empire, the Chinese Empire, the Ethiopian Empire, the Aztec Empire. There's been a range of different empires over the centuries, over the millennia. But it took on a new form. And when we normally talk colonialism with a capital C, we're talking about something that kind of starts in the 15th, to 17th century, the Age of Discovery, uh, driven especially by Spain and Portugal, where maps get written, lands get discovered, interiors get explored, cultures are encountered and sadly conquered and enslaved often. But especially the 18th century, uh, where the major modern empires and, and what we get called the Age of Colonialism, well, sometimes the long 19th century that begins in the 18th century goes up to World War I. 
particularly that time that we see then the, the rise of the modern empires. And what's unique about these empires, this colonialism, imperialism, is really connected with new tech, naval tech. So no longer just uh, uh, transport tech on land or to neighbouring islands, but huge ships that can travel massive distances and crash and die relatively less <laughs> and get there relatively quicker. So that suddenly then the great naval powers of which Britain arguably the greatest, could then no longer just have to rely on conquering nearby where I can get to and where I can then get supply chains to, but I can go anywhere, man, and spread out anywhere. So naval tech, but also to some extent military tech, because you suddenly then have the ability to exercise power, not just with sword or bow, uh, but with, with then gunshot um, and, uh, and rifles. And, uh, and suddenly then there's a, a growth in a scale of power that's different. So that, that, that's what we're looking at, colonialism in the broader sense, but especially in this, this modern sense where you get suddenly this uh, longer distances and a bigger power difference because of technology as well. So I can suddenly go anywhere in the world, and when I go there, I have a disproportionate advantage over you when I arrive. Yeah? And that says nothing about the diseases I bring that sadly also had such a devastating impact. What is mission? So that's colonialism. What is mission? From the Greek word missio, sent, or emissary. Um, there's all sorts of broad definitions of mission, going to fulfil any purpose or cause. But in particular here, what we're talking about is going with the religious purpose of spreading the message of your religion and gaining converts or uh, people who become elite, you know, followers uh, you know, uh, to that religion. Now, not every religion is missionary, especially more polytheistic religions that often have a tendency to go, well, I've got the gods of my country. You've got the gods of your country. You know, maybe I hope that my gods will help me beat your gods, but I'm not especially keen in getting you to follow my gods unless I take you over and then that becomes a way in which I can control you. My gods win. You now need to worship my god. You know. But particularly three religions are strongly missionary religions. Buddhism, Christianity and Islam have a message, have a singular truth to reveal to the world. And we're particularly thinking about Christian missionaries. To a significant extent, Christians have always been involved in missionary work. We're reading this ancient text, the Bible itself, and it's God's word, Christians believe. I believe this is God speaking to us about our past, but it's also a historical text that tells the tale of first century evangelists in space and time, in Athens, at the, uh, the marketplace where the Areopagus, the Mars Hill uh, philosophical school gathered, speaking to those ancient philosophical groupings presenting Christianity across culture and language. There's even little interesting misunderstandings. Did you notice how they said, he seems to be preaching foreign deities in verse 18? You know, they're confused. Because what are they hearing? You know, this communication breakdown. When they hear him speaking about, at the end of verse 18, Jesus and the resurrection, put that resurrection of the capital R as well. They're hearing... Jesus and Anastasius, they're hearing two gods, Jesus and resurrection. Oh, tell us more about resurrection. <laughs> tell us more about Jesus. Um, there's this misunderstanding that it, it's, it's a struggle to try and bridge this gap. And you see this sermon working to try and bridge that gap and build some worldview connection. But Christians 
from this point in the Mediterranean world, spread throughout the Roman world in the first century, into Europe, down to Africa, as far away as India. In the third and fourth century, the Christian historian Eusebius of Caesarea described it this way. Here's a quote from the fourth century. Uh, At that time, around the beginning of the second century, he writes, looking back, many Christians felt their souls inspired by the Holy Word with a passionate desire for perfection. And their first action in obedience to the instructions of the Saviour, Jesus, was to sell their goods and distribute them to the poor. And then, leaving their homes, they set out to fulfil the work of an evangelist, making it their ambition to preach the word of the faith to those who as yet had uh, heard nothing of it and to commit them to the books of the divine gospels. They were content simply to lay the foundations of the faith among these foreign peoples. And then they appointed other pastors and committed them the responsibility for building up those whom they had merely brought to the faith, and then they passed it on to other countries and nations with the help of the grace of God. And so over those early centuries, we have, for example, St. Patrick, the slave, returned then as a missionary to bring uh, Christianity to Ireland. Or um, uh, in the 6th century, areas of the former Roman Empire, conquered by whom they called the barbarians, uh, were then targeted for mission as well. 7th century, Christians reached China. As things progress then in the Christian era, right up to our day, there's also the rising and falling of Christianity, like any religion and any ideas, is also connected with the rising and falling of politics and nations. Uh, So as the Muslim empires uh, conquer Syria, Africa, Eastern Europe in the 7th to 9th centuries, Christianity gets pushed out of those areas and that becomes a massive Muslim empire, uh, which would bring us to the topic in a few weeks' time of the Crusades, that that's the historical context that leads up to the Crusades in the 11th century. And as these rising and fallings happen, one um, older historian of Christian mission, Stephen Neal, who wrote in the middle of the 20th century, he said three things particularly seem to affect the growth of Christianity. One of them was monks, people who weren't married, weren't committed to family, were completely committed to their religion, who gave their time fully to travelling and spreading the message of Christianity. So the history of Christian mission in a lot of the centuries has been associated with monks. A second thing is martyrdom, that is, dying for your religious beliefs. That in a strange way, often, the conviction that led someone to be even willing to sacrifice not just a stable, comfortable life, but actually life itself, because of Jesus and the resurrection, often commended their message. In the next, you know, like one generation tries to kill them, the next generation suddenly takes them more seriously because of that seriousness. Look, sometimes you can squeeze out Christianity just by persecuting it into the ground. Japanese rulers did a pretty good job of doing that, for example, as did the French with the Huguenots. Um, But often it's a bad move. (laughs) If you don't succeed in fully wiping them out, then what you try and extinguish can often then spring back more vibrantly, like, for example, we've seen in China in the last century. Um, So martyrdom, monks... Uh, And monarchs is the third thing, royal favour. And you see this particularly, say, in Scandinavian countries where you get a a, um, a, Scandinavian king will convert and then say, hey, we're all Christian now. That's just what's happening now. And then the whole country will, you know, and similarly we see that in various parts of Africa. So so that's where, where Christianity is spread. And then as we get into our key period, the colonial period, the age of discovery was especially with the Roman Catholics in the 15th, 16th centuries, But in the long 19th century, 18th, 19th, early 20th century, that's where the Protestant religion 
uh, preaching uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, re-clarified and discovered in the Reformation, Protestants became more engaged in mission then. I think part of the reason it took the Protestants a little longer to re-engage in mission compared to Catholics is that the time of the Reformation brought with it a time of massive just cultural and social upheaval. And so there was just enough to try and do, just sorting Europe out, that there, there wasn't as much capacity to look further afield. And so it actually was as things stabilised in Europe that then the ability to think further afield became a prospect. Um, but once Protestants became involved in mission, uh, the sharing of the message of Christianity around the world produced something singular, something unique. Here's Stephen Neal, I mentioned already, writing in the 1960s, uh, you know, famous older history of Christian missions. He says... It is only rarely that it is possible in the history of the church or in the history of the world to speak of anything as being unmistakably new. So often, you know, what has been will be before, be again, seen it again, just different clothes and different weapons, but it's pretty much the same thing. Um, it's very rare that you see something unmistakably new in the history of the church or the history of the world, but in the 20th century, now remember he's in, writing in the middle of the 20th century, one of the phenomena... Uh, has come into view, which is uncontestably new, incontestably new. For the first time, there is in the world a universal religion, and that is the Christian religion. Christianity alone has acclimatised itself in every continent, in almost every country. In many areas that hold many... Uh, that that hold may be precarious and the numbers may be small, yet in country after country, the Christian church evinces the power to be a dynamic minority and is increasingly taking root, not as a foreign import, but as the church of the countries in which it dwells. Uh, Christianity has spread across the world, not entirely bringing with it only European culture, but um, indigenising as it goes. I was chatting on Saturday with Weihan Kwan, who's the um, uh, CMS uh, Victoria director, who was down for a, an Anglican event, um, and, and we're chatting about exactly this point. And he said, yeah, like your average Anglican these days, um, you know, we're watching all these Anglicans at the Queen's funeral, if you, or if you've watched any of that, there's a particular kind of Anglicanism you see there. He said, yeah, but the average Anglican these days is a middle-aged Nigerian woman. And that, that's a, an indication of this, that where, where the, the weight of Christianity finds itself and the different cultural and linguistic modes it expresses itself in. Writing in the early 20th century, Philip Jenkins says, Today, only three of the world's largest urban areas can be found in traditionally advanced countries, namely Tokyo, New York City and Los Angeles. So he's writing in the early 20th century. He says, by 2015, the only one of these names left in the top ten list will be Tokyo. And he was right. Yeah, so I think Los New York and Los Angeles now sit down well down, at least top 20, if not top 30 they have shrunk way down, that the, world, the weight of the world, the largest cities uh, in the developing world, um, and Christianity and Islam, Jenkins points out, dominate these cities often. Uh, people of African and Asian stock, he says, now play a crucial part in European societies, especially in major, major cities. About half of London's people are now non-white. By the end of the 21st century, whites could form a minority within Great Britain as a whole. The empires have struck back. Um, and throughout that, Christian faith often marks these non-white populations, or Muslim faith, or Muslim belief. Now, that's what is mission. That is what is colonialism. 
But it's got to be said that both colonialism and missionaries have brought both good and bad things to the world. Colonialism has brought with it technology, medicine, education, commerce, democracy. But it also brought with it disease, alcohol, sugar, oppression, murder and rape. Vladimir Lenin described colonialism and the end of capitalism creating vast international monopolies of labour and capital. It brought with it humiliation, despair and rage to the disenfranchised peoples of the world. So as we look into history, we need to recognise that the progress of the Christian faith was not entirely pure, glorious and godly, but was often entangled with these forces as well. Christians themselves um, should admit this, shouldn't we? That actually, what is the core of the Christian gospel? It is, I need to be forgiven. I'm a sinner that is in need of God's grace, uh, which means I do bad things expressing, as expression of humans. Um, in rebellion against God, that is expressed in my life, my desires, my behaviour, my actions, my social structures, my civilization, And that even though forgiven, the Christian says, I'm waiting still for eternal life when I will be made new, including morally pure. That while I live in this life, I keep needing forgiveness. I keep needing to repent and be forgiven. That I will continue to struggle with sins, not just... Uh, uh, raw animal lusts and desires, but complicated structures of sin in terms of pride and arrogance and control and um, systems. My whole societies, including our church societies, will be poisoned by sin in in different ways. So it shouldn't be surprising for us as Christians. Christians should go, yeah, I will expect to need to find things in my own life I need repenting of and in my church life and in my church institutions and in my cultural institutions that I should be on the lookout for things to repent of. Yeah. But it will look different (laughs) just as like I was talking about how Christianity looks different, say, in Nigeria or, or England or Australia. Well, actually, sin looks different in Nigeria and England and Australia as well, that a white 21st century Australian Christian will be sinful in a white 21st century Australian kind of way, uh, that a 6th century Scandinavian Christian king will be sinful in a 6th century Scandinavian kind of way, <laughs> and uh, a Nigerian middle-aged Nigerian woman in the 21st century will be sinful in a middle-aged Nigerian sort of way, and so on, that sin itself will take different cultural expressions. A 19th century Dutch trader will be sinful in a 19th century Dutch trader sort of way. And so we need to look at these things and be open to it, that Christians ought to be open to seek to repent for this legacy um, while seeing how, as God always has worked, God can work through the imperfect. So let's dig a little deeper, shall we? Let's think about Christian mission uh, and, and, um, and the good of Christian mission. Because... One thing that people can do as they look at this kind of history and the bad bits is they go, you know what? Maybe it would be better off we didn't try. Maybe it would be better off that you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe and you live where you live and I live where I live and we leave each other alone. Then we won't hurt each other and we won't make a mess of it. That's really understandable. But there is good in Christian mission and, and that's what I want to talk about first. There's a good thing there that is worth pursuing carefully, repentantly, thoughtfully, and even though there's a risk that it brings with it. 
You see, why do Christians want to be missionaries? Why do they want to bring message to the world? I want to say that mission is not, by definition, a violent, invasive, destructive thing. This passage here that we read out speaks about the realities of the world that Christians believe, that God made the whole world. There's a God, verse 24, who made everything. He's the Lord of everything. He's my God and he's your God. I may know him as the name of the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may only have an inkling of him, verse 23, as an unknown God. But there is one creator God that we all share in common. As the, one of the great historians of um, Aboriginal Christian mission, John Harris, writes, um, we mustn't think that God arrived in Australia with the missionaries. The God who made the world was already in Australia prior to white arrival in Australia. God's the God of the whole world. He made every single nation of the world, verse 26, and he made every nation of the world to know him, verse 26 to 27. He is in the world, all over the world, in the jungles and the deserts and the mountains and the cities and the villages of the world. He's not far from us. We live in him because it's his world. He's our creator. We breathe because he allows us to breathe. We uh, sorrow and, and celebrate in his world where his offspring Verse 28, yeah? And therefore we shouldn't worship false gods or worship God in twisted and false ways. Verse 29, as if somehow God lives in a statue or a human temple. No, that's ignorance that God needs to overlook. Verse 30, and he now commands everybody in every nation and village and mountain and and, and desert and and jungle and, and city to repent. Because one day judgment will come and Jesus, the resurrected one, will be the judge unless we turn and come to forgiveness in Jesus. That's the, the worldview in which Christians say, actually, God loves the whole world, made the whole world, wants to bless the whole world. And so I want to tell other people about that. It's a good thing. Just as if you do discover a medical solution to a serious human problem. You want to help people with that solution. You want to bring that. Or you discover new knowledge, say, that does unlock then technological solutions to provide access to travel or new ways of producing food. You want to present that medical solution or technological solution to help others. Well, in the same way, here is an extraordinary spiritual blessing that it would be terribly selfish and short-sighted to not ask, how can I share this with others? In fact, Jesus commands his people to do that. The book of Acts begins that way, with Jesus saying, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. To bring the forgiveness of God, the peace of God, the knowledge of God to the world, to call on people to repent and believe, to turn from false gods to the true God, to abandon a former way of life in ignorance, to find a new way of life in knowledge and light and truth. Christian mission is a good thing. And one of the, one of the dangers that, um, that the, uh, or the, the things that critics of colonialism and mission often can slip into if they're not careful is to slip into suggesting that somehow other peoples of the world aren't capable of agency, of being able to listen and think and believe and understand and change their mind. If we're not careful, we can say, oh, there's terrible things the Western world, including Christian missionaries, have done. Therefore, we mustn't do anything because 
if you, it can end up saying, sounding a little bit like, oh, we, we, we can't trust other peoples of the world to be able to interact with another religion or another culture. If you're not careful, you can end up sort of um, patronising other people. And so in more recent writing about missionary stuff, often it actually converted Christians and others in colon- former colonial areas have spoken up and said, hold on a second, let me speak for myself. I had my own agendas in interacting with these missionaries. And so, for example, here is um, uh, Dana L. Robert um, talking about the historians Lamine Senea and um, Ogbu Kalu uh, describing their work, saying they have emphasised how Indigenous leaders accepted or rejected missionaries and teachings according to their own personal political interests. Sane says, overemphasis on the colonialism paradigm in mission history effectively silences Indigenous agents and ignores how they translated the gospel into their own social and spiritual realities for the fulfilment of their own goals. Similarly, um, uh, James Miller, an Aboriginal uh, Christian, writes, if it's said that Christianity destroyed Koori culture, then it can be said that Koori culture in general was inferior. Such thinking depicts the Kuris to be the helpless victims of brainwashing who abandon everything that they ever believed as soon as someone stood up and preached from an open Bible. But this was not the case. And such thinking degrades Kuri society. Kuris were not helpless and Kuri culture was not destroyed. So there's a pushback there, you see, to go, no, hang on. Yes, there was abuses of power. Yes, there was all sorts of destructive forces. But also, that doesn't mean that people can't have the ability to engage, as, as they always have in the history of humanity with other ideas, cultures, technologies, beliefs, and so forth. In other words, evangelism is not, by definition, destructive and oppressive. It's not necessarily, by definition, Bible bashing. Part of being human is being able to listen, interact, learn, adopt, change, evaluate, accept, convert. Conversion is a human right, too. Part of being human is persuading and communicating and arguing and disagreeing. Part of a living culture, like James Miller is saying of Kuri culture, is the ability to receive and absorb new ideas. Part of a living culture is the ability of a culture to be able to reform and reflect on itself. And so the missionaries went with that conviction in mind. And as, despite all their flaws, which we're about to turn to, they did so at great cost. They were zealous and passionate to seek to bring the message of Jesus to others and they went at great cost to themselves. Long travel, threat of disease, physical danger. Uh, The father of modern missions, so-called, William Carey, his wife had a nervous breakdown in India after their arrival. James Chalmers was clubbed to death and cooked and eaten in New Guinea. The stories go on and on. Adoniram Judson went to Burma in 1813, learned the language, preached in the streets, translated the New Testament. In 1824, during the Anglo-Burmese War, he was incarcerated in extreme squalor. His wife cared for him to keep him alive. And when he was released after the war, his wife died. He never fully recovered, often in clouds of depression. Other missionaries under the pressure uh, broke down and went native, (laughs) ended up abandoning their faith, their culture, everything, and joined the cultures and beliefs of the people they went to reach. Um, uh, and, And we could go on and on with these sorts of stories. We mustn't think that all the missionaries were power-hungry, smug, content uh, colonialists. They were often extremely self-sacrificial, radical pioneers going out of their way for love of their fellow human beings, engaged in long-term, slow, unrewarding, unspectacular, discouraging work. Often 
their work was made. Hard even by the, the disagreements with one another. Even more often their work was made harder by the colonial economic and political powers getting in the way of the effective Christian ministry work. Uh, Philip Jenkins, who I quoted earlier about the modern cities uh, in the 21st century, says, For all the hypocrisy and flagrantly self-serving rhetoric of the imperial age, the dedication of the missionaries was beyond question. Knowing as they did the extreme dangers from violence and tropical disease, it's inconceivable that so many would have been prepared to lay down their lives for European commerce alone. And many certainly viewed missionary work as a ticket to martyrdom. So there's a challenge there, I think, for us, before I move on to comment briefly about the problems that colonialism made for compromising missionary work in the, in the final moments. Um, there is a challenge there for us. What about us, those of us who are Christians here? Do we care? Do we have a heart for other people that they would know what we know about Jesus? Do we care? Do we have a heart for how to make it known what Jesus has done for us? To help people come to know the God who made them? that they might worship in ignorance and in yearning and a sense of something, but not, not know personally, not know his purposes, his plans and his will. You know, that on a, in a funny level, just being a public Christian, you know, my classmates and my workmates know I'm a Christian. Just that step is part of me taking a small risk of embarrassment or awkwardness so that people might know that I'm someone who has something to say about Jesus. Yeah, even just that small step, it's a small sacrifice compared to, uh, you know, having a nervous breakdown and dying of tropical disease or <laughs> being eaten alive. Um, but in each place, we have our ways in which we take those small steps to dare to share with others the message of Jesus. Or consider the bigger steps that my life might be spent in the indigenous communities of Australia or travelling to the other islands and nations of the world in order to seek to bring the gospel to China, to Japan, to... Um, you see what I mean? Do I have a heart for my neighbours, the, the country I'm already in? Do I have a heart for the world? It's a challenge, hey? But, yeah, as I said, we need to reckon with the fact that this was often compromised by colonialism. See you later, guys. Have a great day. Um, uh, that we can learn from the past in the ways that Christians in the past got things wrong as a challenge in our day to think through how might we get things wrong in a different culture? Let me just touch on that briefly. The relationship between colonialism and missionaries was not simple. It was not as if somehow the British Empire went out and the missionaries went out within them and they were linking arms like this going, let's go get them. <laughs> Often the missionaries uh, uh, rode the wave of colonialism. Uh, the, the world was opened up by this naval technology, increased prosperity in the empire, increased uh, these interests in the world. And the missionaries uh, went on the merchant ships as a way to get to India, Africa and Australia and bring the gospel with them. So it was evangelical Christians in England who hustled in order to get Richard Johnson on the ships to travel out to Australia with the First Fleet to, to bring Christianity to Australia, uh, both for the convict population, the free population and the indigenous Australians and the islands roundabout. Yeah? Uh, similarly, Christians jumped onto the Dutch East India Company boats to get to India and so forth. Sometimes they rode the wave. At other times, they went first. Uh, you might have heard of Livingston, Dr Livingston, I presume, a famous explorer, but also missionary. 
His vision was to explore the interior of Africa. He was drawn on, he said, by the smoke of a thousand villages. Um, to uh, can not the love of Christ uh, carry the missionary where the slave trader, uh, slave trade carries the trader? He said he wanted to go and actually liberate Africa. I mean, it's 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 dated vision. He saw it as being commerce, Christianity, and civilization that he would bring, but that was in opposition to oppression and slave trade and, and domination. Right? He was wanting to bring the gospel, and sadly, he opened the way up then for the. <laughs> the, uh, the colon, uh, colonisers to follow. And eventually we had the scramble for Africa and all the European powers squabbling over getting control of its people and its assets. But, but sometimes missionaries went first and their goal was to beat the economic and political powers and to bring something better and to empower the locals with something better. Now, as we look at that entangled mix, missionaries riding the wave of colonialism or going out in front of them, we do have a historical issue, and it's just helpful to recognise this, that um, it's hard to know what you would have done. It's hard to know what could have been done. In a sense, the modern colonial period was, was this freak new period that someone was going to reach all these places. Someone was, with their ships and their diseases and their sugar and their weapons and their religion. Someone was going to get to these places sooner or later. Some version of takeover of the world was going to happen um, and it was going to be messy no matter what. And as terrible as it is and as inexcusable as many of the things done and justified were, um, we need to realise that this, I guess we're in this age as well. How do we live faithfully when the global economic realities of a modern technological age with its need for consumer electronics and cheap textiles we're in a world like that as well, where companies will find ways to do things cheaper elsewhere. You know, we abolish the slave trade and then we go and re-establish one uh, called globalisation, um, where we employ people in, in, our, in the mega factories of the world. And we have to work out, well, they're just the realities that we're in, you know, um, and, and which brings with it horrible things. Um, there, there was no future that wasn't going to involve some of these horrible things. And so it's a question, how do you be faithful in the middle of it? And how do you restrain it as much as possible? Sadly, often the Christian missionaries weren't as critical as they should have been and were overly um, limited by their own cultural perspective. Yeah. The missionary um, was entangled in a lot of these things. They often ended up becoming... Uh, entangled with the government as translator and advisor and reconciler and uh, all sorts of different roles got junked up together, which compromised their role still further. Um, I'm just trying to think how much more to, to cover in my notes here. I might just comment on this one, which is the danger... Um, I have two final comments. One is about the danger of missionaries having power, and the second is a comment about the need to contextualise. I'll finish with those two comments. So firstly, um, it's really interesting, in, um, in his history of uh, mission in Australia, it's a really interesting read, uh, One Blood by John Harris, is a, is a very detailed study of Christian mission in Australia amongst uh, Indigenous Australians. He observed uh, a tendency which was um, the more missionaries had power, often the crueler they became. That there is something about having power that can do something bad for us 
He writes, One of the obvious threads throughout the history of Christian missions in Aboriginal Australia is that as a missionary has gained increasing control over the lives of Aborigines, they either became more authoritarian, domineering people, or else that those missions became more attractive to authoritarian, domineering people. So either the people changed or more of the wrong sort of people got attracted to those missions to have power. Obviously, those missionaries who had no power over the Aborigines but who wanted to attract and influence them, those ones tried to be generous, interesting, attractive people. But somehow having power over people's lives changed them. That's rough, isn't it? But that, that's a challenge. There's power can appeal to our worst natures. Even civilised, dignified, spiritualised power can make us stern and cruel and justify worse and worse things for the good cause of which we're engaged. So that's a first challenge. What you do with that, I don't know. Because you do need people to take positions of power in order to effect large-scale change. But I guess, is it helpful for me at least to make you scared about having power? (laughs) Is that helpful? I guess that's what I want. I want people who are in positions of power to be nervous about it rather than fully confident, confident and entitled and privileged in it. Don't you? That's, that's what I would like. Um, and so I guess especially for those ever involved in Christian leadership or Christian mission, even if you just have an influence in discipling a new convert, if your mate of yours becomes a Christian, you're now very powerful in their life because you represent the message of God to them and you know more about God than they do. That's a position of power. Rather than go, oh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> wow, I'm a prophet of God. You should go, oh, my goodness, this is a scary responsibility. My opinions and my hang-ups and my issues can be projected onto this person if I'm not careful. If I need to be needed, can, can use this person for my own things, yeah? So that's the first warning, uh, is how power so easily corrupts us, including the Christian church. And the second is the need for um, uh, contextualisation. Um, Uh, sadly, the Christian missionaries together with the colonisers often couldn't imagine a Christianity that could be nomadic um, and naked and yet Christian. The goal was to get to clothe the Aboriginals or the the primitives (laughs) in various places and to get them to settle down and even to get their houses to look more like European houses, to get them farm the way we farm and to dress the way we dress and to worship. They just didn't have the imagination to imagine that God made the peoples of the world and could redeem the peoples of the world with their languages and cultures and so on. They often they couldn't help but think this was true of Britain with its Christianity and its technology. It was true of America with its manifest destiny wound up with freedom, ironically, given the, also the slave trade that helped build the nation, but a sense of we have this responsibility to bring the light of freedom to the world. I just couldn't see past going, we're just better though. <laughs> and the way we do things is just better. Um, and it was a real need for mission societies um, and missionaries to recognise our duty to listen. To listen and to understand and to expect to find things that are bad about their own culture and noble about another culture. That stance, that posture... It was there at the beginning of the modern missionary movement with someone like William Carey, who was very committed to Bible translation, for example. So even from the very beginning, there were people who saw the need for this. But increasingly, that's been where mission has become healthiest. It's become more committed to what has been described as the free self 
vision of the church where it's self-governing and self-multiplying, yeah? Even self-theologizing, forming its own. Sometimes people add a fourth self of self-theologizing. There's a sense of going, how do we... Um, um, how do we empower the local Christians to be Christians in their own local context? Yeah? Um, and, and help them find out what Christianity looks like in their country, in their language, in their place, in their time. So that's a second thought as we close. And, and we could look, for example, at 1 Corinthians 9 to 11 as a discussion of those principles in our Bibles. We're out of time for this morning. I hope that's been thought-provoking for you. And, and I guess my, my goal for you is to still be confident in the Christian message and its influence on the world, but to be cautious about how easily it gets entangled with culture, power, money, sin, those kinds of things, which then hopefully makes you a confident but cautious Christian in your own life, ministry and evangelism. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do grieve and we, as we share in that history, we turn from... Uh, the wrong things that people have done in your name, including the people from our cultures have done in your name. We turn from that and seek to find your wisdom, your forgiveness, your guidance to, to live the Christian life and preach the Christian message in a way that, uh, that honours you and loves others. We thank you for the ways in which a great cost people did uh, lay down their lives to bring the message of Jesus to the world and that we have benefited from people like that reaching us through the ages and even in our lifetime. And so we ask that you make us um, confident but cautious in the way we live, in the way we speak, and the way we do ministry, to be eager to share your message, but fearful of our own propensity to distort the message or to entangle the message with culture and power and other things uh, that aren't from you. And we pray especially for those Christians in the world who perhaps have a legacy of this kind of distortion and abuse and, um, and so on, that you empower them to, to be uh, the church in those countries and to, uh, to lead their own peoples um, uh, faithfully and truly to deal with the anger and the hurt and the damage um, and to find ways forward that, are, that lead to the further growth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.